in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 16. This show is titled, Tragedy Ain't for Sissies. We have on the show Natalie Haynes. You remember her from the book, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. She has written a novel called The Furies. It takes place in Edinburgh, Scotland, where a teacher introduces Greek tragedy to a class of struggling students. Also, we got permission from Jim Malcolm to play his rendition of Flowers of Edinburgh. Jim Malcolm is a folk singer and writer. You can visit his website at jimmalcolm.com. The independent newspaper lists him as one of the finest talents to emerge from the Scottish folk scene in years. We will play the entire rendition of Flowers of Edinburgh during the show. His album, Live in Glenfarge, is available on iTunes. Check it out. Before we get into the book review, Let's take a moment to discuss the gods. The following segment is titled, Gods and More Gods. In ancient times, there were many gods. When science was lacking, when medical knowledge was almost equal to magic itself, when there was little control over events, the gods the many gods were a way to explain away man's lack of knowledge, a way to explain man's lack of power. Gods were an easy explanation for this and that. If you lacked power over the lightning, the sea, birth, love, sex, fish, fire, your own health, gods could be categorized and attributed to all sorts of unexplainable things. What or whom could possibly control the sea? Whom better? than a god. Thelis of Milesios, one of the first principal philosophers of ancient Greece, once witnessed two stones on a table that miraculously pulled together as if by magic and clung to each other, held together by an invisible force. He is quoted as saying, there are gods in everything. Is it any wonder there are gods in every house in Rome? In crook and cranny and corner, highborn or low, the rich get them made from gold and silver, the poor fashion them from copper and clay. They are the protectors of the family, prayed to and found on the bargain table. Great Venus, do this for me and I shall sacrifice a dove in your name. Each family was protected by a larrarium of household gods. Is your favorite temple too far to walk? You can worship the gods in the comfort of your own home. 
The Lyrarium is a doll-housed-sized temple set upon a column, set by the bed, the kitchen, or reserve a room. The gods stand guard at the door, even on the windowsill. You can keep the gods lined up nicely by the fire while you burn incense and slaughter the pigeon while mumbling your own prayers. Near the graves of good dead Uncle Entreides and Moldering Aunt Olivia, a small statue of Hades stands near the door of the crypt. A statue of the great Hymenaeus is given to every new bride on her wedding night. Venus hangs around the neck of the ardent lover. She knows that he will sleep upon her doorstep for many nights to come until she opens the door. The boy about to go to war has shoved into his hands a statue of Mars by a tearful father. Overjoyed by his son's visage in his old armor and his gallant helmet. Before journey by foot, and for the traveler that is about to undertake a sea voyage, he has handed the image of Janus, the two-faced god. The god of beginnings and ends, symbolized by two faces staring opposite directions. He is a border guard for boundaries found on dividing lines between properties throughout the peninsula. Janus. Janus, a common gift for new businesses, new ventures, something for newborns. About to have a banquet? Who do you invite besides the guests? The gods, of course. On the dinner table, a ring of gods baked in bread. Juno, Vesta, Minerva, Ceres, Diana, Venus, Mars, Mercury, Jove, Neptune, Vulcan, and Apollo, all laid out with crusted smiles and cheese for bits of teeth. Gods. Gods are even called upon when we want to laugh. Everyone wants a good time, right? And an actor, just before taking the stage, stops to make a small sacrifice to Momus. Momus, in Greek mythology, the personification of satire and mockery. A sailor may have a tiny statue of Proteus, an old sea god. A fisherman may have Pontos, father, a fish tied about his neck. A captain may clasp a copper statue of Poseidon, lord of the sea, as he watches the storm clouds gather on the horizon. Pan sits on the shelf of tavern owners and winemakers, his advice constantly prayed for and sacrifice made. How many vineyards must be protected? For that matter, how many taverns throughout the Republic has Pan in the name? Pan in the possessive of a foul noun. Pans this and pans that. It's up to you to fill in the blank. Draw back the blanket in the baby's bassinet, and around the child's neck is Jupiter tied 
with a cord. The gods fly past us like a flock of birds. The music is titled Birds of the Wild Forest. The composer is Michael Travlos, and the flute solo is by Ivona Linka Travlos. The piece is divided into five parts, the hoopoe, the cormorant, the crane, the owl, and the hawk. Listen to the entire composition on YouTube, but make sure you go to their website at travlos-glinka.com. That's T-R-A-V-L-O-S-G-L-I-N-K-A.com. You can also find the music on the album Progressions. Book Review, The Furies, by Natalie Haynes. They lived in the underworld and rose up to earth to pursue the wicked. Euripides was first to speak of them as three in number, Electo, unceasing in anger. Desifuni, avenger of murder. And Majira, jealousy incarnate. They were the daughters of Gaia, the personification of the earth, and sprang from the blood of her mutilated spouse, Uranus, the personification of the universe. Now this is heavy stuff. In a May 14, 2015, Washington Post article, college students claimed they needed a trigger warning for a class on mythology they took at Columbia University. They claim that Greek mythology and Roman poetry contains potentially distressing material. I wonder what would have happened if they took a history or a literature class. Normally, I'd consider the subject of trigger warnings to be politically correct nonsense, but after reading The Furies, twice I might add, it makes me wonder if a trigger warning is just what is needed. The title, The Furies, is simply the personifications of the emotions that set the plot in motion. Anger, revenge, and jealousy. This is a tale about theater director Alex Morris that comes to Edinburgh, Scotland to teach. Most of her students are dropouts, hard luck types. Her class is a last ditch effort to instill in them a love of learning. She uses what she knows best, her knowledge of the theater, and uses Greek tragedy in hopes of making a connection. According to the book, The Greek Plays by Lefowitz and Rahm, Greek tragedy survived because they speak essential truths about the real nature of human life and our ultimate powerlessness and our limits of understanding. There is a quote by a character named Mel, a student in Alex Morris's class, that reflects an, not only an adolescent view of the world, but runs right up next to the definition provided to us by Lefowitz and Rahm. Quote, None of us have any control over most of what's happening to us. 
We don't have a say in anything. End quote. The plot gets complicated. For Alex Morse comes to Edinburgh with baggage that is equal to any Greek tragedy. Her boyfriend was murdered with no justice provided. In defining the characteristic of a tragic hero, Alex makes an error of judgment. Hers may be teaching classics to the impressionable. Mel decides to provide her teacher with the required essential elements of any play. A beginning, a middle, and an end. Mel decides to provide her teacher with an end that has a glorious Greek tragic note about it. No spoilers here, read the book. The setting is Edinburgh, a glorious Edinburgh, colorfully described in the book. Edinburgh changes beyond recognition during festival season in August, when the city's population doubles for a month. Every student theater group, every stand-up comedian with a microphone and scruffy blonde hair gelled into artful disarray, every sketch comedy troupe with a convoluted punning name that plays on an outdated film title, they all come to town. The supermarkets are suddenly packed, the streets heave with tourists, and the Royal Mile switches from being a passable route through the old town to a static home for street theater, jugglers, and mimes. When I first came to Edinburgh, all those years ago, with a school play, a production of Anui's Antigone, we performed for a week in a church hall over by the Botanics, and I fell in love with the city and its pulsing, thronging theatricality. By the way, special thanks to Nancy for that reading. Playing in the background are drums and bagpipes performed by street performers during the Fringe, an artistic festival held every year. Edinburgh is a modern town. Music bands can be punk, reggae, hip-hop, progressive, alternate, and even jazz fusion. Bands can have names like Beta Band, described as Folktronic, to a band titled Universal V, a five-piece indie slacker rock band. All of this, bagpipes and all, are in the center of a venue of architecture, from medieval to ultra-modern. Just take a look at the Scottish Parliament. Visit Edinburgh, and you're not on a Braveheart movie set, but immersed in a vibrant youth culture. The past you can see in Gothic, up and down the hills, but the future is heard in coffee houses, church halls, and even opened libraries to all sorts of entertainment, including garage bands and comedians. Even a little Shakespeare is thrown in for good measure. Mel plays two roles in this book. She is a tragic hero, no doubt, but she fulfills the role as a Greek chorus by her consistent diary entries that comment on the ongoing actions during the plot. A Greek chorus provides commentary on actions and events. It can be used to narrate, explain, or provide analytical commentary. In a classic piece, it can seem surreal as a chorus of people speak in unison or individually as if in song, 
Many times they are presented ghost-like, hooded or in masks. Mel's thoughts, her observations, are peppered throughout the book. Mel's diary entry is emphasized in italic, allows us to look into her mind. Her entries move the plot along and even consider the purpose of life itself. Which is better, knowing or not knowing something you don't want to know? It looks simple, right? Not knowing must be better. But it isn't simple at all. You might not want to know if you were dying, but it would be better to know, wouldn't it? So you can say goodbye to people and make a will and finish things off properly. Not knowing would be worse. Definitely. There is an essential element that both teacher and student both undergo. Each experience a catharsis. It is the purification of emotions that result in renewal and restoration. A character achieves a state of liberation from anxiety and stress. The audience achieves the same through the experience of tragedy. Both Mel and Alex each achieve their own by the end of the story. Read the book. Edinburgh and Greek tragedy, who can ask for more? Now as promised, Flowers of Edinburgh by Jim Malcolm. You will find on the road from the castle down to Holyrood the funny little stones that in the cobbles of St. Giles. If you stand for a while, you will surely see a local passing by and spitting at it in a practice style. If he wears a maroon, he has shown his allegiance to the heart of Midlothian, the loyal proddy man. If he's wearing the green, he is spitting disobedience as a duty-bound supporter of a Bernian. I can tell you that the flowers of Edinburgh aren't in the flowercock in Prince's Street. They're the quirky little things on he often brings you to mind you of the history beneath your feet. I can tell you that the flowers of Edinburgh aren't just the girls at university. They're the quirky little things on he often brings you to mind you of the history beneath your taste. You're strolling along on the quiet side of Princess Street Admiring the castle with an ice cream in your hand All around are the splendours of Scotia's bonnie capital The Walter Scott Memorial, the Ross Bandstand There's a loud sudden BANG as your heart ceases beating As your ice cream is flying as you dive into the ground but you're held to your feet by a dear old local lady Who will tell you you've been startled by the one-clock gun I can tell you that the flowers of Edinburgh Aren't in the flowercock and Prince's Street They're the quirky little things Only key off and brings you remind you of the history beneath your feet I can tell you that the flowers of Edinburgh Aren't just the girls at university They're the quirky little things Only key off and brings you remind you of the history beneath your taste 
that sounded at the end was the audience banging on the tables to show how much they loved the performance. I hope you did, too. I have in the line Natalie Haynes. You may remember her being on Ancient Roman Focus once before. She wrote The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. Well, she's written a novel called The Furies. Natalie, thanks for being on the show. It's always my pleasure. Uh, could you uh, tell us about your book? Yeah, it's... Um it's quite a sad book, which is surprising because I am generally quite happy. Um, but I always feel I should warn people because otherwise I talk really jauntily about um, all the things that are in it. And then I feel like they get home and like, ah, it's so sad. But it is a sad book. But it is um, a story about a woman whose name is Alex Morris, who has suffered a terrible bereavement before the book begins. Um, and as a consequence, she leaves London, England, where she lives and works and goes to Edinburgh in Scotland, which is where she had been a student. Um, she takes a job at a pupil referral unit um, to teach drama uh, to students who are in some way or another too damaged to be in regular school. Um, and the only way she can get through to them is uh, with Greek tragedy, um, not particularly because uh, it's the first thing she thinks of, but because it's the first thing they don't know they hate yet, if you see what I mean. she Nobody knows anything about Sophocles, so when she suggests Oedipus the King, um, they sort of agree reluctantly to read it. And then these sort of stories of bloody revenge and free will versus determinism all those kinds of stories um grip these students um and she feels like she's doing a good job which in many ways she is but at the same time as these lessons are playing out seemingly positively one of her students is learning a, a terribly different lesson about greek tragedy and about revenge and thus it is itself i hope a modern day greek tragedy which is packed with ancient greek tragedies your lead character is named alex is that correct that's right. What would she want her students to gain by studying the Greek classics? Um, I suppose when I wrote Ancient Guide, um, it comes from a place which I think you probably share, um, where I I genuinely believe anything that you, any time that you give to the classics is time well spent and time that it will it will repay. Whether you're you know learning Latin grammar or watching a film set in ancient Greece or Rome, I admit that this theory has been tested this year. <laughs> Some truly appalling film set in ancient Greece and Rome, but never mind, can't be helped. And um, I suppose this book was an attempt to sort of test that theory and say, well, is it really true or is a little knowledge a dangerous thing? I guess it, it sort of depends on each reader whether they whether they think that the classics are good or bad for these students. Um, I think eventually they're redemptive. But I think Alex is, Alex is sort of desperate. She just wants them to learn something um they're quite aggressive students and they're sort of left untaught which is always a temptation i think for teachers just go do you know what they're unteachable um i give in they, they just turn on each other um and on her so it's a sort of diversionary tactic uh in the first instance and then they become genuinely engaged with these plays and i think bernard knox the great classical scholar said that the sort of sophoclean hero was by definition an extremist, which I think is completely true. Um, it's a sort of positive characteristic or emotion taken to an extreme degree. Oedipus is clever, it's a positive thing, but he's so clever it makes him impatient, quick-tempered, and that is a, a risky business. Had he been perhaps a more patient man, perhaps a slightly less clever, he would maybe not have lost his temper at a crossroads where three roads meet and killed the, the person in front of him, who would, of course, spoiler, uh, turn out to be his father. 
I suppose I have always thought that teenagers have that have that um, kind of in the bag that your emotions are so strong when you're 16 um, years old that you have that that tendency to extremism too. So it's always seemed to me like there's a a marriage between teenagers and Greek tragedy that doesn't get explored very often. From what I remember about my teenage years, it's it's everything affects you and you can't see beyond the next couple of days. You know, it's um, so you had unity of time, like <laughs> Aristotle would want. <laughs> Completely, you live in real time. Yes, um, um, there, there's no forwards, there's no backwards. It's just you know in the minute. And teenagers, I think you're completely right. Have that quality exactly in the way that Greek tragic characters do. Uh, what is drama therapy? Um, drama therapy is um, the process by which one tries to make uh, other people able to confront more difficult parts of their lives through the mechanism of drama. So a good drama therapist, and Alex, I have to say, is not a very good one, um, a good drama therapist would be able to um, take students who'd had very difficult periods in their lives. One of her um, students has a brother in jail, an absent father and so on, lives with his grandparents because his mother isn't very functional. And she might be able to help that student explore those kinds of experiences, perhaps using um, role playing. And then you might be able to encourage a student to think about things more empathetically because you might, for example, set up a scene where you say, "Okay, remember when you had this fight um, that you told me about with your parent well, we'll do that scene and then partway through we'll swap sides so that you play and, and make you think about, you know, yourself from the outside as opposed to from the inside, make you think from about other people's perspective from the inside as opposed to... Those are things that good drama therapists would do. Um, as you can see, Alex is perhaps not uh, the most qualified person, although she's technically qualified. She isn't emotionally qualified. She is far too busy addressing her own personal uh, trauma at the start of this book. Do you think the uh, ancient Greeks practiced a sort of drama therapy? I absolutely do. I think um, the idea that um, comedy and tragedy are both cathartic uh, goes right back to the ancient Greeks. I think comedy is cathartic for us because it enables us to sort of laugh at other people's troubles and and then eventually perhaps come to see our own troubles in a similarly light-hearted manner. And tragedy prepares us for the disasters in our life by allowing us to sort of rehearse those very strong emotions most of us i would hope won't know what it feels like to realize one day that you have killed your father and married your mother but many of us yeah. might undergo the experience of uh of guilt um or of uh, a sense of betrayal um a sense of powerlessness a sense of feeling that we are where we have no control over our destiny that it's all controlled for us and greek tragedy is the perfect place to to start asking those questions and we have really good evidence that the greeks were considering those things if you look at the response to these plays as and when they're performed in something like aristophanes the frogs where aeschylus and euripides are arguing the toss about uh, oedipus in the underworld uh, they're both dead and they're still arguing <laughs> about about oedipus um and that was made in i think 404 i may be wrong uh, but i think 404 and so even then, these, uh, this comic version of these playwrights, they're arguing about whether he was born kind of cursed or whether he became it. Does he, does he only become the most unfortunate man to ever live as he goes through his life and does all these terrible things? Or is he that from, you know, almost before he's born because he's destined to do all these terrible things? So there were certainly questions that the Greeks were asking themselves. And I think watching these kind of very powerful, um, and difficult stories play out with your fellow countrymen at a, a sort of big formal, festival dionysus of course these 
plays were performed for the first time at the city Dionysia in Athens was the god of both uh, theatre and wine. So you'd be having a drink. Um, there'd be a big ritual sacrifice before the plays began. So you'd be having meat, which you didn't very often eat. So essentially the whole thing was like a slightly big drunken barbecue, um, only with terrible disasters playing out on stage. It seems to me that's very therapeutic, but I may be wrong. Uh, why did you place the setting in Edinburgh? Do you know, I had finished writing this book before somebody used the phrase Athens of the North, which is often used to describe Edinburgh. Really? Athens of the North? Is, is they that call what... it the Athens of the North because it's got this very big hill in the middle, like the um, Acropolis, and it has a castle on top of that hill, a bit like the Parthenon. It's nothing like the Parthenon, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't want to missell you Edinburgh, which is a beautiful and glorious city in its own right. But the weather, I have to tell you, is very, very different from Athens. Um, but yeah, it's called the Athens of the North, and I just didn't, I genuinely didn't think about that until the book was long finished, which I am now mortified by, because of course I could have been bluffing it out the whole time, going, yes, of course, it's, <laughs> it's a very important metaphor. It isn't, it was an accident. Um, but I needed a city that you could walk around. It's a book, I'm sure you've noticed, which a lot of which happens on foot. Um, Alex walks through Edinburgh in, and the kind of skyline and the weather reflect her mood and I really wanted a city that you didn't drive through. And Edinburgh is incredibly hilly and has... Um, uh, it's, a friend of mine used to describe it as being a city designed by Isha. It doesn't matter which direction you're facing, it's uphill. You can never quite work out how you never get to go downhill. Um, but that is undeniably true. So it's a city which is full of obstacles and um, uh, literal and metaphorical. And it was also a city where, by unhappy coincidence, I myself had been very sad. I um, suffered uh, a much much easier bereavement than Alex um, in that I lost my grandfather. I spent 12 no. years on tour when I was a comedian I'm and sorry. I got the message that my grandfather was dying when I was on my way up to Edinburgh to do shows up there. And then two years later, I had um, I was on stage in Edinburgh and came off to find a message saying that my grandmother, who was perfectly fine but in hospital, was now dying. So it's a place that I very much associate with um, sudden and unexpected grief. And so it was always going to be it was always going to be Edinburgh. Edinburgh is a great place to be sad because it looks very stern. Um, it's like these huge kind of um, stone walls and these huge doors. It's like giants used to live in Edinburgh. It's very strange. The graveyards are the most enormous gravestones you've ever seen. I can't, can't quite ever work it out. But it, it's immensely kind once you get through this sort of stern exterior. So for me, Edinburgh was the only place it could ever be set. Do you believe that damaged people understand tragedy better? Yes, I think they probably do. I think they probably understand it from the inside in a way that um, the, the sort of less damaged amongst us, I think, probably never can. So, yeah, I think that's that's probably the case. I have this vague thesis that um, we're all kind of in the same amount of pain all the time. But when you're young, it's mainly emotional. And then the older you get, the more physical it becomes. You stop, your, your emotions stop being so powerful, but your knees hurt, essentially. The older you get, same amount of pain, net, but uh, painful joints rather than painful heart. And uh, I think teenagers have such a propensity for, for damage and indeed for self-harm. I certainly had an incredible capacity to kind of run into a situation which would break my heart into a thousand shards and then wonder why I was such a mess. Um, I think that's why I was drawn to tragedy, for sure. Um, so yeah, I think they do have a, a different kind of response to it, maybe a different kind of insight. What is a fury? They are a sort of early version of the Terminator, in essence. If they have a, a, a goal in mind, and they do, it's to persecute somebody who's killed a member of their family. N nothing will shake them from it. And they are a, 
um, a very sort of disturbing version of our conscience, I suppose. The idea that we'll be pursued by Fuhrers if we do wrong is something which um, which runs through myth and uh, through tragedy, but also through epic when Dido, um, again, a spoiler, uh, when Dido um, threatens to, to kill herself in book four of Virgil's Aeneid, she says, I'll kill myself and I'll come after you um, like a fury carrying black fire um, because they are uh, often presented in these in these forms. So the most famous version of the Furies, of course, is in uh, Aeschylus Oresteia, um, the only complete trilogy of Greek tragedies to survive. Um, though we always think we have more, we don't, uh, just that one. And uh, it's the it's, a, it's an archetypal heroic choice that uh, that has to be made by Orestes. So his father, Agamemnon, in the first play, the Agamemnon comes back from uh, Troy, where they've sacked the city. He has a concubine, um, Cassandra, the uh, priestess of Apollo, in tow. Um, his wife, Clytemnestra, has been waiting for him to return because he... Ten years ago, killed their daughter. She has not forgiven nor forgotten. So when he returns, uh, she tricks him and then slaughters him with an axe, um, which means that her remaining children, Electra and Orestes, make a decision. They have to avenge the shade of their father, uh, which means killing the person who killed him. That's what retributive justice entails. Um, but, of course, if they do that, they'll be um, themselves killing a member of their family. They'll be killing their mother. Retributive justice is all fine until it happens within the family, and then not so much. So they are given the, the most unenviable choice. Do they allow their father's shade to go uneasily into the underworld, i.e., um, he's not avenged, and so he'll he'll never rest easy in the underworld. Or do they kill their mother? And of course, they they choose to kill their mother. And for that, Orestes is pursued by Furies right up until the the conclusion of the third play. Which begs the next question. Here's the big question. Uh, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Do you have any characteristics? Okay. <laughs> do, you, do you have any characteristics of a fury yourself? I totally used to as a teenager, absolutely. Um, and I still think of myself as being quite a, a, a kind of grudge-bearing person. I, I don't really understand forgiveness. I never, I never really have. I sort of admire it in other people, but I, I don't feel it myself. I, I always feel once betrayed, betrayed, really. And so I always think of myself as a great grudge-bearer. But the thing is, I may not be capable of forgiving. I'm astonishingly capable of forgetting. <laughs> Absolutely no capacity to remember. <laughs> occasionally I'll walk into a room and there'll be somebody there and my partner will be like, you hate that person. Like, do I? Why? <laughs> just totally blanked out who they are and what they did. I think it comes from all those years as a stand-up because if you really remembered the pain of each bad gig, you would never go back on stage again. So my medium-term memory is just completely erased on a regular basis of all emotional difficulty. <laughs> I sometimes drive to a city and I'll be like, I know I've been in that theatre, but um, good gig, bad gig, who remembers? And so, yeah, I, I, I think I lack the the monomania that the Furies would really require. Um, I, I, I definitely had it once, but I don't have it now. I have a tool for you, you know, if, if on people you can't stand or you have gripes against. Keep notes. <laughs> That's exactly what I need, with a photograph. Yeah. And then every time they change their hair or something, they have to send me a new picture to update it. Yeah, that's what I need. You know, you talked about the Dionysia. Uh, it is speaking about modern things, uh, modern treatments, and modern uh, TV shows and dramas. Is there anything on TV t- today that you think might have a chance of winning the Dionysia? Ooh, I would totally have argued for The Wire when that was on. Any t- any day of any week, I would have argued for HBO's The Wire. I just think it's so beautifully structured. 
and they were so capable of allowing a character to be incredibly flawed and yet still sympathetic. Um, you could have a character who in season one accidentally shoots an innocent person and by season three was the most incredible, thoughtful, kindly teacher uh, of children in a school. Um, and, and that never seemed forced or implausible. Um, I've argued before, I think, that the character arc of Stringer Bell in the first three series of The Wire is the character arc of Oedipus and Oedipus the King. Um, and I think it was a conscious attempt on their part to, to sort of Greek things up um, uh, in terms of their drama. Um, so, yeah, I, I would argue for The Wire any time. Uh, in your book, one of your students is named Mel, and uh, is there... Is there any symbolism in the fact that she is deaf? Yes, her name is uh, Mel is short for Melody, um, so it seems particularly cruel that she has um, lost her hearing, um, which she does as a young child. And um, you probably noticed that as in Oedipus, of course, the great irony of um, Oedipus is that only when he is blind can he truly see who he is and what he's done at the beginning of the play where he has both eyes he can see clearly but he can see nothing at the end of the play when he is blinded himself he can see everything but he can't see anymore and the themes of seeing and hearing run throughout the furies so uh, mel is is deaf she can't hear um, but also there's an element of her perhaps not wanting to hear what's being said to her a great deal of the time and alex is blinded by grief at the beginning of the book um, and only as the story unfolds does she find herself able to really see clearly what's happening. Only once a terrible event has occurred can she actually see what she has done and, and what's happened around her. So, yeah, those those twin themes of deafness and blindness run throughout the book. They are intentionally symbolic. Is there any current British news story that uh, has the makings of a of a Greek play? Oh, that's a difficult one. I have to say rather dispiritingly, we get um, Medea and uh, Hercules or Heracles, if you prefer his Greek name, stories um, infrequently, but too frequently, um, i.e. stories where a mother has killed her children or when a father has killed his children. Mm. Um, and those near, you always seem to get them in the summer. I can never work out whether it's because there aren't political stories happening in the summer. So human interest stories um, rise to the top of the news agenda or whether simply it happens more over the summer because children are at home for longer because of school holidays i have no idea but we do seem to get them on a a worryingly um as i say too frequent basis but in terms of uh on a sort of grander political scale because after all greek tragedies are supposed to be about uh, leaders um at least in theory it's again an accusation leveled at euripides in um, the comedy the frogs uh, by his fellow rival playwright aeschylus is that he puts the gods and he puts the kings into rags that his kings and um, queens and princesses are always sort of wearing rags and wandering along a beach <laughs> instead of being suitably grand so yeah we should be looking at our rulers i think for a true greek tragedy and luckily it seems like hubris is quite a common problem for them. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Tragic flaws seem to be abounding. In part the part of the job description for um, <laughs> politicians. But, um, well, did it start as a glimmer of an idea or did you, do, do you outline the entire novel? I outline the entire novel because I would really like to write like Stephen King and just be able to start with a beginning of an idea and create a perfectly paced novel <laughs> just, you know, from writing basically with the headlights on on a dark night. It doesn't seem to be a problem for him at all. I don't have that gift remotely. So I had to plan the whole thing out 
in advance to make sure that I knew where I was going because it's structured like a play itself and written in acts and scenes. I wanted to be very careful that there weren't scenes that didn't need to be there, um, which you might have in a, a more, um, uh, a less dramatic perhaps novel. But this, it was quite important to me that it followed those Aristotelian principles of drama and that every scene had to advance the plot and reveal character. That that's his rule. And I, so I very much wanted to, to mimic that. Um, and because there are technically three timelines in it, the, there's one narrator, which is Alex, and we follow her in the present, which at the present at the time is 2012, when she's in a lawyer's office explaining that something terrible has happened. And then also we follow her, her from a year earlier. So there's a, a past tense narrative for her um, when she starts at Rankila Street, that the unit meeting all these students and, and finding out what they're like. Um, so she has two timelines running simultaneously through the book. And there are also diary entries and then later letters um, from another character, which are therefore another timeline because they're in the immediate past tense. So instead of being a year ago, it's yesterday or today. And, and keeping track of those three timelines and working out how I was getting the information across to you, the reader, um, and in which voice and at which in which at which time in the book um, it would come, quite aside from at which time in the story it would come. There was a moment where I was looking at my desk, which had different coloured index cards for each timeline and act one, scene one written and then scribbled out. And I thought if I put string between these cards. I'll be the Zodiac killer. That is the only <laughs> difference between me and the serial killer now is the string. I can't believe it. But yeah, it's the only way I can write. Thank you very much for the interview. It's always my pleasure. If you're interested in reading more by Natalie Haynes, check out her recent book titled A Thousand Ships. It's the Trojan War from an all-female perspective. It's available on Amazon or drop in at your local bookstore. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused.